Welcome to Why in the World. I am Ben Shepard. I want to start by saying a big thank you if you've rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts in the past couple of weeks. I really appreciate it. We've seen a nice little spike, so thank you so much if you are one of those people that has done that for us. If you haven't and you are enjoying the episodes of the show, please go and get that done. I say it all the time, but it does genuinely really, really help us out. Today's guest is Fran Tarauskas. She is absolutely brilliant. She's an advocate for adventure and epilepsy awareness. She runs her own podcast as well, which is called Seize Your Adventure, which I would implore you to check out if you haven't yet. It was recorded in lockdown, this conversation, so unfortunately, I didn't get the chance to meet Fran in person, but hopefully we will do in the future. Fran Tarauskas is on Why in the World. I am in Chester, and where are you, Fran? I'm down uh, very outskirts of London, so I'm Kingston upon Thames. Normally, we uh, we record these episodes in person, but obviously, at the moment and with the current situation, uh, we're doing a few over kind of like FaceTime, Skype, just an amalgamation of all of the platforms. So thank you so much for taking some time out of uh, actually a glorious day. It's a bank holiday Monday as we're recording this to uh, to do this. I appreciate it, Fran. Oh, that's quite all right. Just for people that maybe don't know your story, give us a brief overview of you and uh, some of the things that you've done. So it's a little bit of a complicated story, but I'll start with the the thing that people find most interesting, I suppose, which is that I was diagnosed with epilepsy in 2015. And it was quite a long journey to my diagnosis. I had a but I had my first seizure in 2011 when I was at university and I kept having fairly sporadic seizures for about three or four years until I was finally diagnosed with epilepsy in 2015, uh, which obviously is a, a fairly big diagnosis, fairly big thing to be told. And with epilepsy in particular, it doesn't have a cure as such. There are several treatments that you can do, but once you're diagnosed with epilepsy, essentially you've you've got it for life. There is the potential for a seizure to happen um, for me at any moment because I have what's called idiopathic epilepsy. So they're not quite certain why those seizures happened. Basically, um, when I was diagnosed, I was put on some medication and because I'm very confident in my medication, I haven't really seen the epilepsy as a reason to stop doing adventurous things that I wanted to do. So in 2017, I decided to walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain. I did a route called the Norte route, which was absolutely beautiful, going across the very top of Spain between the mountains and the sea. And that route was about 500 miles in the end that I walked so that took me just over a month to finish it and it was absolutely fantastic. I was um, perfectly fine throughout with my epilepsy and by the end of it I just felt so uh, strong and healthy and have really felt like I was getting a connection back with my body that was a good connection again. But uh, when I was on 
that walk and afterwards I found it really interesting that a lot of people were surprised I can do that kind of thing with epilepsy and I had a lot of people asking about the condition, asking how it affects me and that kind of thing and when I got home I started writing about this and processing the walk and started to try and find other people with epilepsy that were maybe doing similar stuff, uh, partly to reassure myself that I wasn't doing something crazy or, you know, um, reckless and that kind of thing. Uh, But I did find a lot of people out there doing things and, and doing adventure sports and doing challenges to keep a sense of self, essentially, with this condition. And I realized that It was really difficult to find these people. It was really difficult to get those kind of stories about epilepsy. So I decided to be the change you want to see. And I set up a a website that became a podcast called Seize Your Adventure to try and tell these stories. And because I'm doing that, because I'm speaking to lots of incredible people doing things that I initially never considered that I could do, I started being inspired by them and have been over the past couple of years trying to get adventure into my everyday life a little bit. Part of which last year was doing uh, a bunch of adventure activities I've never done before, including running the 100 kilometer race the stones across a weekend in July, which is even though a much shorter challenge than the Camino, it felt like a much bigger challenge to me and uh, was just absolutely fantastic, essentially. So going back to 2011, then you mentioned that that was when you had your first seizure obviously it's a very scary thing to happen Mm. and when it happened I would imagine it probably took you off guard what was your your reaction following that first seizure and kind of your family's reaction to that as well it's really interesting trying to look back on it because I think it helps that I'm very much a step-by-step living person anyway and when I had my first seizure It was scary. I remember I was sat in the hospital for a very long time, not quite knowing what was happening. And when I walked outside, I just started crying, walked into the arms of my then very new boyfriend. We'd been only going out for about six months or so at the time um, and just started sobbing. But then after that, I did the tests that the doctors recommended. The tests were mostly coming back fine. I had a, a CT scan, so one of the ones where you go into the, um, yeah. I was going to say chamber. The, well, the it's nervous. kind of like that, yeah. isn't it? It's like a, it's like a, like you're going inside a giant circle almost. That's it. And because they were checking my brain and my brain waves, I couldn't have any headphones or music or anything. So it was very. Um, that, that was probably one of the scarier tests. And obviously when they're, they're looking at your brain, they're looking for things that are quite scary diagnoses. So they were looking for anything that was happening in my brain that could be causing seizures. But mm. because the tests all came back fine, the doctors reassured me that it was probably a one-off seizure and I, I took them at their word essentially. But then I, I kept having seizures essentially. And I think the scariest thing for me during the the stage between my first seizure and my diagnosis was that there are seizures that aren't as recognisable as seizures. There are lots of different kinds. And you have what's called the tonic-clonic seizures, which are the main ones I have where a person loses consciousness, they fall to the floor, they convulse, which is very obviously a seizure. 
but I was having what are called auras or partial seizures as well, which I didn't recognise and didn't understand what was happening. And for me, that is basically um, hallucinations of hearing voices. So obviously, wow. when something like that is happening, um, you, you know that something's not quite right in your brain. And I did what any normal person would do and ignored it for a very long time. And <laughs> eventually, um, it, it kind of like I started having more of those kind of auras. And then I had a couple of the big tonic clonic seizures. So it was fairly obvious what was happening after that. Following the big seizures that you mentioned, when you come around and you, you realise exactly what's just happened, how do you process that? It's really difficult in terms of the the time that I lose from having those seizures so the seizures themselves from what people have told me only last a couple of minutes but every time I've had them there's a good half an hour of time that's just missing that time um, I I do some very strange stuff apparently I gabble lots of Mm. words at one point I put a plate into a bag and all kinds of things that's probably one of the scarier things because you essentially I I woke up with people around me that I didn't recognize so I remember the first time that I had a seizure um, I, I woke up sitting on the sofa in my flat with paramedics there and it took me several minutes to realize that it was me the paramedics were there to see essentially because my brain was processing things so slowly there wasn't really a stage at which I panicked but there was a lot of confusion and that confusion just kind Mm. of um, lasts however long (laughs) you're you're kind of like focusing on what people are telling you to do essentially. You mentioned that it was quite a long time from obviously having that first seizure to to getting your diagnosis When you got the diagnosis, how did that kind of make you feel? And how did that diagnosis affect your family and your friends and obviously yourself as well? It's really difficult for me to say. I know that my both my, my boyfriend and my family and my um, friends at the time, they were all very, I wouldn't say au fait with it, but because they knew a fair amount about epilepsy they had either known people with epilepsy before or my parents in particular work with adults with learning difficulties so they've had full-on epilepsy training and are familiar with the condition so for them I think they they were very good at just supporting me through that essentially there wasn't any particular fear for me um For myself, and I don't know whether this is to do with the epilepsy because it does affect memory, but for myself, I can't remember too much about how I felt. I certainly remember feeling a a little bit of relief in a way because I had an answer to what was happening. I had something Mm. where they, they could tell me, it is this, take this medication, it will help, essentially. And I was perfectly happy to do that I was perfectly happy to to kind of like try something to make it better certainly I put a lot of confidence in my medication when I started taking it I was a little bit naive as to how good medication is with epilepsy um for for most people with epilepsy about 50 percent of them respond to medication and about 50 percent um they they either have to take a couple or they don't respond at all 
I was in the 50% that did respond. And therefore, after that, I was able to continue my life fairly regularly, essentially. And like I say, I'm a fairly one step at a time person. So I don't often feel anxious about the possibility of a seizure um, particularly after mm. my diagnosis I I just kind of like for the most part carried on knew that it was something that could potentially happen but that was the same before my diagnosis and now with medication it's less likely to happen. I'm excited to talk about one step at a time so let's go from the diagnosis to the Camino why was that something that you wanted to do and let's talk through the journey from sort of its birth where you realized oh, you know what I want to go and do something like mm-hmm. this to obviously the journey itself starting with where this came from and why you wanted to do it when did it first come into your head that maybe you wanted to do something big like this so I am not one of those people that had the Camino on their bucket list. It wasn't something that I even really knew about before um, before I knew about it, before <laughs> before I started. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that, I know exactly what you mean there. Um, it wasn't necessarily something that I um, kind of like had as a, a goal to do all of my life, but certainly one of the big triggers for it for me was when uh, the Brexit vote went through in 2016. And it was just after I had my epilepsy diagnosis and I had my medication and I felt like I was at a stage of actually being able to go and do things again. And for me at that time, especially having that Brexit vote very much felt like a lot of the world was being taken away from me in a in a kind of like being able to access it easily since. So initially I was calling um, the trip my Goodbye Europe tour and I'd planned to try and go to see lots of different European countries. But in the end, I just settled on this idea of going for a long hike. It had been a very long time since I'd done hiking. It had been a very long time since I'd managed to be in mountains and that kind of thing. And because I don't drive, um, that's partly because of the epilepsy, because when you have seizures, you can't drive for a year after your seizures. So I just never learned because I kept having them. I decided that walking would be a really good way to explore a country because um, I could do it slowly. I could go to lots of different places. It would be cheap. And so I just started typing into Google long hikes in Europe. Unsurprisingly, the Camino was fairly high up on that that first page. And Spain was a, a country that I wanted to explore more. I'd only been there once before. I loved the idea of trying to learn Spanish whilst I was out there. And um, there was something about it which just clicked in terms of that would be a really good one for me to do that is going to challenge me physically. It's going to challenge me in terms of um, being in a, a foreign country and learning the language a little bit. But because the Camino is quite well walked, there would be hostels, there would be people if I needed help and that kind of thing. Um, And also I wouldn't have to worry about the camping because I'm still not a massive camper. It's not something that I necessarily enjoy. I will do it if I need to. Uh, But the Camino does have hostels along the way. Um, Having said that, I 
did have to sleep on a floor several times and uh, (laughs) half finished buildings and that kind of thing. So it wasn't necessarily quite as comfortable as I thought it would be when I first started. From when you typed in long trails in Europe into Google, it's kind of the inception of this Mm. walk to getting on the plane and then stepping foot on the trail for the first day. What was that journey like telling friends and family again and people that you were going to do this? How did that kind of sit with them? I think for the most part, they were just a little bit surprised that something like that happened hadn't happened sooner. When I was okay. <laughs> 18, I went over to New Zealand and just travelled around New Zealand for about um, three months I was there. And, you know, I was 18 at the time and I was perfectly confident with being 18 and on the other side of the world completely by myself. Um, I look back now at the pictures of me when I was 18 in New Zealand and I look tiny and my backpack was massive. So it's something that I, I'd done that big trip when I was 18 and then I hadn't done anything really. I'd done a couple of weekend breaks, family holidays and that kind of stuff, but I hadn't done any other traveling since then. So some kind of traveling was on the books essentially and 2017 I just turned 28 28 how old am I now yeah sorry I just turned (laughs) doing that age yeah 2017 I just turned 28 so it was exactly 10 years since the last big trip that I'd done and I was at a stage financially where I could do it I'd been able to save up enough that I could keep my flat at home and my boyfriend was staying at home so we managed to keep our flat because I had saved up enough money to to pay the rent whilst I was away essentially um and yeah it just was something that I think my my boyfriend knew that it I I was going to travel somewhere and he doesn't understand the the hiking he's not a very active person in terms of hiking and that kind of thing but he was very on board in terms of he he knows that I know more than him about it so he was going to just trust in me that I knew what I was doing essentially. Talking about the the Camino itself and obviously the journey that took you a month did you say? Uh, Yeah probably just over just over a month yeah 32 days of walking but I did take a couple of rest days when I was out there as well. Okay I think you're allowed a couple of rest days I think (laughs) you're allowed a couple of rest days. Uh, You've already mentioned about sleeping on a floor Mm. I feel like there's a story in that why did that happen what what's the story behind that? It happens several times I think basically it is a very popular route and it's got much more popular quite recently and particularly with with the Norte route um, I was I was walking with some people who have walked to the Camino several times and they've seen it evolve and they've seen it become more popular over the years I think the Norte route has much smaller hostels and they just weren't as equipped and ready for the amount of pilgrims that they were getting because I went in uh, July and August so it was peak summer peak hiking time essentially and because I'm not the fastest hiker and probably more accurately I do not get up early in the morning so I'm leaving much later than other people (laughs) I would be arriving 
later than everybody else and sometimes there just wouldn't be enough beds so there were two options with that which was keep walking to try and find a bed or try and convince someone to just let you sleep anywhere so there were um, a couple of times where that was sleeping on the floor there were times that were closer to Santiago where you're getting more people hiking you're getting more people congregating where the villages would put on these these mass sleeping places so they'd open up um, gyms and schools and that kind of thing so that you could have people just sleeping inside and, and being somewhere for the night essentially but there's certainly uh, a couple of times where it's not necessarily the most comfortable night but um, y- you know there, there's the saying on the Camino which is the Camino provides and there are people that will kind of like offer something if they have something to offer essentially. And how did the body cope with that much mileage and that much day-to-day walking was it something that your body adapted to quite well or were there any little niggles or struggles so it definitely adapted quite well I thought that I was ready to do a lot of hiking when I arrived (laughs) I very quickly found out I was not ready so for the first three or four days I was so achy by the end of it the last three or four kilometers I'm just hobbling along my feet are throbbing and uh, yeah the first three or four days my body was not ready for it but then I hit that (laughs) that fifth day and I was suddenly okay with it my body had adapted I wasn't aching anymore and then the only real issues were if I was doing really long days you'd get the sore feet and I had some very unique blisters on my feet from my boots which were (laughs) on the tops of my big toes that was the only place that I was getting blisters I have no idea why all my heels everything else was absolutely fine but the tops of my big toes are obviously a little bit of an odd shape and I don't think I've ever (laughs) heard of that they were the only place that was um, having real difficulties if I was walking far and I had to learn how to strap them up because it's an odd place to to strap up essentially Um, when you mentioned a big day what was a big day for out there The longest one that I did when I was out there was uh, essentially a marathon. I think it was about 42 kilometres, 43 kilometres. And for people that like have never walked that far, it's so different Mm. to run in. It almost sometimes feels harder Mm. because it's just it's that it's that mental capacity that to know that you're going to have to keep going for what does it take to walk that far? Seven, six, seven yeah. hours? Like you just, you have to just keep going and going and going and going. Yeah. It must have been something quite mentally challenging to to deal with the fact that you do have to do that back-to-back days or you have to do a certain amount of mileage back-to-back days to make that goal of, of getting to the end. For the most part, I was okay with it. After the first couple of days, the first couple of days... I was still trying to figure out how long it would take me to walk a certain distance. So you think that three miles is going to be an hour, that's average walking pace. But then obviously, if you're going up, you're going down, you're stopping for breaks and things, you're having to figure out exactly how much you're... um, how much time it's actually going to take to walk essentially so the the first few days I definitely found it a bit disheartening where I thought I should be at the end but I wasn't because I was just going slower than I expected Uh, 
Mm. Once I got used to that, once I got used to how fast it took me to walk somewhere, the the mental side was much better. But the thing that I found really difficult was when you got to a place and there were no beds. That was the thing that I found most mentally draining because you had to decide whether to keep walking and going further than you had planned to or whether to try and figure out something where, you, where you'd planned to stay, essentially. I would imagine as well that you're thinking about that all the time. You're thinking, oh, I, you know, am I going to get there? And is there going to be a bed? And, you know, you want to rest after walking that amount of distance. That must have been quite difficult to deal with and like to just be like, oh, try and push that to the back of the mind when you're you know experiencing this wonderful wonderful trail yeah that's it definitely it was always the the end of a good day was if you had a roof over your head food in your belly and good people around you then that was that was a Mm. good end to a day and for the most part it always worked out like that but there was maybe one or two times when it didn't so you mentioned people that's something that I definitely want to chat to you about the experiences and the memories that you shared with those people that must be one of the memories that you hold very close to your heart and it must feel quite special to have met so many people from so many different backgrounds out there. Absolutely and you know if you are the kind of person that has decided to walk hundreds of miles just to get somewhere then you're going to be an interesting person (laughs) essentially and everybody that you spoke to had different reasons for being out there some people had it on their bucket list for years some people were doing it with their family some people were doing it with their boyfriend or girlfriend or partner and all of this kind of stuff and you you did come across some amazing amazing stories and you had everything from people that um were addicted to substances and now aren't to people that were walking in memory of somebody that they loved and all of this kind of stuff and there's something about doing that hike when you're walking you end up opening up to people a lot more because at the end of the day you don't have to see them again you are you are just somebody within that day to them you don't have to make yourself look good or anything like that so you do end up having intense conversations very quickly when you're doing those kind of hikes and you're sharing that experience with them as well so they know exactly what you're going through and I'm sure on their side they're thinking exactly the same thing they're thinking I can open up to this person because it's one of those things isn't it flashing forward to the final day then and waking up on the last day of this journey that from inception to that point has been such a big part of your life How did you feel when you woke up on that last day knowing that you only had X amount of miles to get to the end? That is a much bigger question than I think you think it is. Uh, For me, it was a very interesting last day because I had been on a route that was fairly quiet up until the last 50 kilometres. So you saw the same people all the time and you you kind of like would bump into someone you know and then you wouldn't see them for a while. Whereas the last 50 kilometres, because or the last 100 kilometres, because you've got lots of routes joining together, it suddenly got really busy. And to be honest with you, the last two or three days were one of the hardest ones. And I actually nearly didn't go into Santiago because I just wasn't 
enjoying being around people that there was just so many people essentially so the very the, the second to last day I did contemplate not actually walking to Santiago I felt like I'd done my hike I could get there another way if I needed to or I could go somewhere else if I needed to but saying that I then found someone that I knew from earlier in the hike I bumped into them again on the very last morning and because of that it felt like a little bit more of a push of I can walk with someone I know I don't have to meet new people and walk in with people that I don't know or walk in by myself I managed to find someone on the trail who I hadn't seen for about a week we hadn't kind of like bumped into each other for a a while and that felt like a little bit of a sign to keep going and you're constantly uh, you're people are constantly kind of like egging each other on essentially and if you're having a bad day somebody else will be having a good day if you're having a bad five minutes somebody else will be having a good five minutes so you can kind of bounce off each other and I had a a bad a bad evening and morning just before walking into Santiago and I was very close I only had about like seven miles on the last morning essentially so it it felt like it felt like my walk was done but obviously it wasn't and there was somebody there to remind me of that which was very lucky looking back now you must feel so appreciative of that person Mm -hmm. and that you managed to get that done because I would imagine if you hadn't done that last seven miles and we were having this conversation now you'd probably be thinking I just wish I had done that last seven miles. Yeah, I think that there's... I mean, I, I, I'm very bad at... Um, I'm very bad at doing the what-ifs, especially with things okay. that you haven't done. Um, I, I try not to look back and see things a different way because you're, you're on this path now, essentially. And, you know, if you get, if you get lost when you're on a, a hike or something you can you can retrace your steps and you can try a different way or you can keep going essentially um Mm. you look for signs and things when you're doing that kind of journey you're looking for reasons to do one thing or another because that even though you're all going to Santiago there are lots of different ways to do it there's lots of different places you can stay and all of this kind of stuff that's a really really good kind of attitude and outlook to have because a lot of people you know I do it myself and I know a lot of people and I've spoke to a lot of people that do it and they look back and they think oh what if I had done this or what if I had done that or what if and harboring and holding on to those feelings it's going to do you no Mm. good at the end of the day is it because you haven't done it or that situation hasn't happened so just live in the moment and live in kind of the present almost which kind of it sounds like you do quite a lot I try to do and I think that definitely well, I, I say I try I I don't have to work at it too hard there's definitely yeah. some things that I I worry over there are things that I um, worry about what my what the next thing that I need to do over the next week is or um certainly for for example at the moment with the lockdown I think we're all doing the the kind of like reassessments a little bit in terms of what we're Mm, potentially going back into when the lockdown opens up again so there are things that I do worry about but it's a bit more about future things rather than things that have happened in the past because 
I'm very much a, a <laughs> proponent of um, your path has brought you here. So you can only ever keep going from where you are, essentially. You can't, you can't necessarily go backwards. Going from finishing the Camino to, to then transitioning into becoming an ultramarathon runner, um, what was that process like and what was the thought process that went into, I want to do this now? So I have never really been a runner. Running was just not something that I thought I could do. My sister was a very good runner at school and does that a lot, but I was not the runner of the family. Um, But (laughs) when I came back from the Camino, I needed something to keep my fitness up and I needed something to um, just just feel like I was uh, achieving something physical, essentially, because walking for however many hours every day it just felt amazing and my body felt very strong doing it and so running was a way to build that kind of um, physical physicality and fitness into an everyday life where you're working essentially Mm. Um, and ultra running just wasn't on my radar at all I didn't even realize it was a thing but because I was speaking to people for seizure adventure there are a couple of people that I spoke to and that are quite well known in the ultra running community that have epilepsy that do ultra runs. So um, Diane Van Deren was one of the people that I, I learned about. She is well known for having uh, partial seizures and she has them when she's running sometimes as well. I was looking at these people doing these ultra runs in amazing places and I just started thinking about the fact of could I possibly run the trails that I'm used to hiking? And it seemed like something that was a little bit crazy to me, running those long distances, running along trails and in woods and mountains and things. It's something that's like a fantasy film, you know, you're doing um, the the running on uh, things like Lord of the Rings. They finish running in the end of one film and then they're starting running in the next one that was the kind of thing ultra running meant to me essentially but I was seeing real people that were doing it and I was seeing real people with epilepsy that were doing it as well and I just decided to to try it essentially and I was running on tarmac and hiking on trails and so I just started running on trails fell in love with it straight away it's one of those ones where you are um, you're really engaging your whole body you're getting to see amazing places when you're running this far and um, I, I just started to think about a challenge that was maybe running related that I could fit into my everyday life and race the stones was one that just looked like a Uh, a really interesting one essentially so running a hundred kilometers but you're doing it over a a weekend so I did it in two days and um, race the stones actually because it's the the Ridgeway run and it ends up at the Avebury stone circle which is just a fantastic you know almost fantasy style ending essentially Um, but it's a, a really personal trail for me as well because we used to hike some of that quite a lot when we were younger Um, my family are not too far from that area so we used to go to Avebury quite a lot we used to do that bits of that trail on day hikes so it felt like a it, it was just a trail that fit essentially it was one that would work for me and 
So I started training and uh, was just trying to fit into my life, which when you're doing the early stages is fine. You do it after work, you do it on your lunch break and things. But then the training runs got longer and I was having to take holiday from work to make sure I could fit in the runs and this kind of thing. It was a really interesting journey in terms of learning what my body can do and learning how far I could push it and I was having to think about things like um, drinking enough water and doing the fueling and doing the what foods you want to eat and that kind of thing and because of the type of epilepsy I have where we don't really know what causes my seizures there are lots of things that put stress on your body that could potentially cause a seizure, such as getting dehydrated or getting overtired or not eating enough and that kind of thing. So all of these kind of stuff which you are putting your body through with an ultra run could potentially cause a seizure if I pushed myself too far, essentially. And so training for the ultra run and doing that run was a real mental challenge, much more so than the Camino for me. Um, When I crossed that finish line after the the second day, the second 50 kilometres in a weekend, I just felt so proud of myself. And my family were there, my parents were there, my sister was there, my boyfriend was there, and they weren't there at the end of the Camino, you know. (laughs) So it felt like something which was um, much more much more kind of like inclusive of my family even though they don't necessarily do this stuff as much um and yeah it was just so reassuring for me to go through that whole process of learning what my body can do learning which walls I could push through and which ones I wanted to kind of leave there essentially um I certainly feel like I could do it quicker next time (laughs) hey yes that's what i like to hear you've bitten by that ultra marathon bug for sure (laughs) i i love i love the the description of the balancing act of what training for an ultra marathon is and all of the balancing of all these different worries and all of these different elements of of what an ultra marathon is and putting all of that kind of into into one it's you know, the the metaphor is packing your ultramarathon bag, isn't yes, it? Like yeah. <laughs> you have to think about everything you're packing, and it's the same with training and everything else. It's like packing all of this stuff into one little bag and trying to work out how everything fits is, is quite difficult sometimes. But you did an amazing job. I think doing it over a couple of days is almost more difficult than doing it <laughs> over one day. So I like to say so maybe one day next time. I did two ultra marathons in a weekend, so it's definitely yeah, well, better than that. You did back to back ultras not many people can say that they've done that i want to talk about and cover seize your adventure a little Mm. bit because this is how i came across you in the first place just chat to me about how this idea came to fruition and then where we are at with it now so it came about after the camino because i essentially started writing about my own story writing about that hike and just essentially kind of like working my way through it on digital paper. So I was putting things out on blogs and stuff. Hmm. And I started having people with epilepsy contact me and either saying that they 
didn't know that people with epilepsy could do this kind of stuff or that they thought they were the only one with epilepsy doing this kind of stuff. And I just realised that there is this massive gap where people see the the epilepsy realm and the adventure realm and there's just no crossover but that crossover is there and I wanted to to highlight it so I started going and researching and trying to find as many people as possible with epilepsy that were doing all kinds of different sports and I just wanted to tell their stories and part of it came about because I didn't want my story to be the one that people associate with with epilepsy and adventure because my story is my story and epilepsy is so different for everyone that everyone is dealing with it in a different way and I really wanted to try and share as many of those stories as possible to try and show the different ways that epilepsy affects people and the different types of adventure sports and challenges that that people can Mm can do essentially because I'm a big proponent for the fact that there is a challenge and a adventure for everyone out there and it's just about finding your one and the one that fits into your life and fits into your bag and that kind of thing. It started off as a website, just a a nice little blog getting people to write their stories and put it on there but then I essentially realised that I don't read blogs that much so why am I expecting other people to whereas I do listen to podcasts a lot I listen to podcasts every day and so I just decided to change it into a podcast which felt so right from the first time that I started doing it essentially because I was able to not just read people's stories but actually speak to them and as we're doing with Mm. this ask questions ask follow-up questions really get to the heart of why and how people do these these things with epilepsy, essentially. And so the podcast launched at the end of 2018. So just started the second season of it, um, which is, it feels like a very big jump to say that there's a second season. And um, it has just been incredible being able to get, people to share their own stories essentially and you are hearing the passion behind people's voices and behind people's stories and you're also hearing the sadness as well and the the way in which epilepsy has affected people at times and we go into um, some fairly intense stuff I, I like the big questions the big questions tend to happen quite early on in the conversations and you you <laughs> do get a really good idea of how people live with the condition even people like me that don't necessarily have seizures as much anymore being able to hear those stories and hear those conversations about it I I like to think seizure adventure is a really um, broad spectrum in terms of people with epilepsy certainly find that it, it gives them confidence it gives them kind of like hope and stuff like that but for people without epilepsy it is an adventure podcast first and foremost so we are talking about the the sports that we are passionate about essentially and how we how we do them with our condition a big thank you to fran for coming on white in the world she is absolutely brilliant Okay, a little announcement about how you're going to get new episodes in the future. We are going to change how we release the episodes 
a little bit, partly down to the coronavirus pandemic and partly down to the fact that I do want to start releasing the episodes every week back to back. So what's going to happen is there is going to be a little break from now until you get a new episode. But when you get a new episode, you're going to get 10 on consecutive back-to-back weeks. So the next episode you will hear will be at the beginning of October. But following that episode, as I said, you will get a new episode every single week for 10 weeks. We have got some brilliant, amazing, wonderful guests lined up. And from now until the new 10 episodes... All I would say is go back and catch up on any of the episodes that you have missed up until this point. Thank you so much for the support we've been getting for the podcast over the past weeks and months, particularly during lockdown. It has been brilliant and we will catch you again soon with 10 brand new episodes of Why in the World.